We are in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 13 this morning. Last week we started, uh, actually a couple of weeks ago, we started on this particular subject, and it's all revolving around the incarnation, which in light of the season that is rapidly uh, approaching with increasing pace and is going to take uh, many of us by surprise as far as all the things that go along with the Christmas season, we are focused on, and hopefully there are still vestiges within society, but certainly within the Church of Jesus Christ. Wow, that was a long run-on sentence. We are focusing on the incarnation, the taking on of human form by God Almighty. And because the incarnation is so, so uh, difficult to explain, no matter what one says about it, the language, at least at certain points, can't fail but to be inadequate. It can't fail but to be inadequate or, or inaccurate and sometimes just plain wrong. And the reason being is that there comes a time when that which is created, which, by the way, is you and me, okay, when that which is created tries to explain the one who created us has to consider that it can't be done with 100% adequacy or accuracy. In the letter to the church at Rome that Paul writes in chapter 9, he alludes to this idea. It's a different, entirely different context for sure, but it's been helpful to me where Paul says, Will the clay, likening us to lumps of clay in the hands of a potter, the creator, he says, Will the clay say to the potter, Why? And he's like, That's right. Yeah, boy, I need to be reminded that uh, I am but a lump of clay. And how dare I call the Creator on the carpet, so to speak. He is the Creator and we are the created ones. The idea of incarnation is just, it's, 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 I would say it's impossible to adequately explain. And so perhaps maybe it's better to say that instead of explaining it, more oftentimes than not, perhaps we describe it. And it's the same thing with the Trinity. Man, you know, we come up with pictures, word pictures, things that we think are somewhat analogous, but at the end of the day, everything is just inadequate. We can't thoroughly explain those things. And I believe that this idea was sort of Paul's tact in his letter to the church at Philippi. I'm going to do just a little way of review of last week, and so I'm going to be reading in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 as we head into new material. Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or clung to, but humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Well, verse 9 begins with a therefore, referring directly back to the wonder or I should say the wonders of what Jesus did in this whole idea of incarnation, in Jesus, God, taking on human form. Because in laying aside the morphe theu, we talked about this last week. If you weren't here and you're going, the mor- what, who? The morphe theu, that is the very form of God, not meaning shedding his godness, Jesus, when he came, not shedding his godness, but volunteering not to avail himself of his godly prerogatives. For the singular reason that he become the self-qualifying Savior of mankind. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, chapter 2, verse 17. 
Jesus had to be made like us in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things, in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is a covering of the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid or he's able to help those who are tempted, both ultimately but also in an immediate sense. Meaning, Jesus now, being that one who was like us and always accepts sin, is able to help us in the everyday things. And, of course, also ultimately in our once-for-all help that we all need, and that is standing in our place before the Father and being judged on the basis of the perfection of our Savior instead of our own lives. The writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. So in Jesus taking on human form, in emptying himself, Jesus became qualified to be our substitute. Again, going back to last week and what was probably a little bit of a discombobulating message, in taking on the homoiomity and the schematianthropu, (laughs) that is the appearance and the likeness of men, he endured giving up the very serenity of heaven in taking on the appearance of likeness in men. He emptied himself of his divine powers, of his divine rights, of his divine authority. He came here and he endured the squalor and the imperfections of the sin-mangled planet that he himself was part in making with the Trinity in perfection. He subjected himself to a corrupt system of justice And he came and he endured a vile world that was positively and is anti-God. And as the absolute apex, the, the highest point, the zenith of his humiliation, he endured the cross receiving the sentence of death by torture. A sentence that is the wages of sin, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The sin that belongs to you and me. Verse 9 uses again that word, therefore, meaning that because of everything that Jesus did in taking on human form, giving up all that he did for our benefit, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him not just the name, and as it says in our translations, but has bestowed on him the very name or God's own name, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You do realize that everybody lives on in eternity. Everybody lives on in eternity. Those who bowed their knee and confessed with their tongue Jesus as Lord here in this life and eternity with Christ. Those who are made to bow now after they've departed this life and are made to bow down before the majesty of God also live eternity in a Christless 
eternity. But every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why we have the mission of informing people, of warning people. So long as they have breath in them, there is still hope for them to be in that eternal place in the presence of God Almighty instead of the alternative. So what was the result for Jesus in His subjecting His will to the Father's will? In emptying Himself of everything. He was exalted. He was raised up higher than ever, in a sense. In yielding to what looked like defeat, Jesus secured the greatest victory ever. Now, I know that uh, we've got a big span of ages in here and all. And if I remember right, which I'm sure I don't, um, the first Star Wars movie that came out was probably around 1977. It was 77. Okay. I was trying to think. I took my son and he was like just barely three years old. Yep. All right. So anyway, it's the first one that was out, but it's actually fourth just to confuse you, it's actually fourth in the series of movies, the first three that came years and years later. Okay, now you got all that and I messed you all up. Well, in that movie, which I think was the best of the whole lot, okay, and uh, you have, of course, good pitted against evil. And it's very clear as to who's good and who's evil and wicked. And even in, the, in this movie, we have, of course, resurrection theme and ultimate power and authority of a sort of, you know, a loosey-goosey, you know, the force be with you kind of thing. I mean, there's all these things that are common throughout the best literature of mankind. Do you realize that? Do you realize that even Frankenstein, okay, and I'm talking about now the book, not the, the uh, Boris, uh, yeah, the Boris Karloff, and, uh, whatever, but it's all based on a resurrection theme. It's the greatest story of man. No wonder people would imitate it and use it as a, as a storyline in some great works of novel. Well, it's been repeated throughout history, and we see it played out in the first Star Wars movie. Now, picture this. I don't want to point it because it's loaded. Don't mess with me. All right. So we're in the movie. You got Princess Leia, you got Luke, you got Han and Chewie, right? And they're trying, and they're trying to make their way to the uh, to their ship. And of course, Obi Wan at this time is having it out with Darth Vader, consummate good with consummate evil, and they're going at it, right? And out of the corner of his eye, he sees Luke and them trying to get to the ship, okay, the Millennium Falcon, right? And he's fighting, and of course, you got Darth Vader. You know, scuba man, whatever. And he says, your power's a weak old man. And whatever. And they're doing all this cool stuff and everything. And then Obi-Wan, you see him glance over again as he's talking to Darth. And he says, Darth, strike me down and I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And in one last glance toward his friends trying to make it safely to their ship and their getaway... They're duking it out there with their little lightsabers. And Obi-Wan stands, puts his sword up. And he makes himself completely vulnerable to that last swing of Darth Vader who comes right across his body. He didn't get cut in half. We see his cloak just in a pile on the ground. There's no, there's no Obi-Wan. And then, of course, later on in the movie, what? 
You hear him talking from the great beyond, giving his friends direction, giving them instruction to get them safely on their way. It's just such a great picture of the resurrection and what Jesus did in willingly sacrificing himself for the sake of his friends. When it seemed Jesus gave up everything in becoming a human being, he gained back more. And as I said, the Son emerges as Savior and the Lord of all, sovereign over all things and sovereign over all people for all time. So is there a timeless principle here for all people everywhere? Remember again this past week, what we read and what I read at the outset of this is have this, what, Jesus attitude in yourselves. Is there a sense then, and we see what happened with Jesus when he submitted himself and all the attitudes that he had to the Father, he was exalted, he was raised up. So is there a sense that we can expect God, not demand, but we can expect God to act on our behalf if we are striving to emulate the Savior, if we are striving to inculcate the attitudes of Jesus in ourselves and in our own lives? The answer is yes. What does Peter write? In 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you. Which means I don't have to worry. Thinking that I'm going to get squashed if I actually put someone else before me. Which was also part and parcel of the passage last week. Verse 12 then alludes to this. Verse 12 begins with one little important word in the original, the word hosta. Not to be confused with the big green leafy plants, okay, that we have in our garden, uh, my wife's garden. Hosta means so then. It's kind of like therefore. It's in, it's, it, it means that, well, in light of all this, so what's the net upshot? What's the net result? What's the, what, is, what do you do with that? So then, in light of all of that, Now that you understand the timeless principle, you understand that it's not you against the world. And also, what will you now do with that in your walk of faith? Well, Paul writes to help the Philippians out in understanding this. He writes in verse 12 of chapter 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence. But now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Mm, You didn't mishear me. I didn't misspeak. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a controversial statement. Because it seems to contradict our hallowed hallowed doctrine of justification or salvation through faith by grace alone. Paul writes that to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He writes to Titus saying it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, chapter 3, verse 9. Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercies, he saved us. And then you look at his letter to the church of Galatia. Oh, my head. The context. 
was that they had heard the gospel in absolute clarity, and they responded, and they gave their lives to Jesus. And all the shackles, the handcuffs, the chains, the ball and chain on their feet that were the laws of Judaism by which nobody could ever become good enough to merit God's favor, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, completely took off all those shackles and those bondages of the chains of the law. And they were walking in that liberty, but something happened. And they themselves now started picking those handcuffs and back up and putting them on, started shackling the chains around their own waist, putting the balls and chains back on their feet, and started to try again to earn their favor with God by living to all the rites and the rituals of Judaism. And Paul, listen to him now, he is ripping. He says in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes? You, of all people, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I just got one question to ask you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law and all these rituals, or did you receive the Spirit by the hearing with faith? And he says it again. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, would you now be perfected by the works of the law? He's ticked, man. He doesn't get it. How can you experience the freedom and the good news of Christ and then subject yourself back again to all the arduous labors that are never-ending and just take the lifeblood out of you? And just a verse or two later, he uses Abraham. And he says, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to concentrate on verse 12 and what Paul meant when he wrote, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This past week, uh, a Facebook friend put a post up, and this is, the, this is the total of the entire post. He wrote, I heard an interesting statement, quoting, and he's quoting in his, in his post, it's sad that in the church we are the only army that shoots our wounded. Now, I've heard that quote over and over again for the past 30 years in various different contexts, various different sermon illustrations meant to punctuate some kind of point, blah, 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 yada, yada. It tripped my trigger, shall we say. Go figure, huh? My response. Personally, I would love to write an essay on this quote, but alas, there are more important things to do. It's the kind of quote that sells well because people want to believe it as yet one more justification for why they can write the church off. Admittedly, it has gained some traction because there is a sense in which there is some truth to it. However, it is more fallacious than true. While some churches certainly have been and can be very heavy-handed in all the wrong ways, the greater sin of the church of our day is that it has become so tolerant of anything and everything that the mandate of genuine faith to demonstrate fruits of the Spirit, to be like Jesus, have long gone by the wayside as something that might be nice to do for the super, super spiritual person, but certainly not mandatory in an age of grace. 
my dear wife, Barbara, honey, why don't you put your phone down and go for a walk? (laughs) When dissecting Paul's statement, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, let's remember the foundational principle of biblical study, what is called hermeneutics, pulling out of the Scriptures what is there, not putting into the Scriptures what we want to be there. The foundational principle is let the Bible interpret the Bible. So when we come to a statement that seems to be contradictory and certainly controversial, like work out your salvation, we have to allow the Bible to do the interpreting. Let's take the easier portion of Paul's words in that verse. But as I say, let's take the first part of Paul's words. Remember, these are God's words. If we believe 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 about the doctrine of inspiration. So I said last week that Paul knows people because Paul knows the living God. And when it comes to living like a follower of Jesus, it is very easy to fall into the all-too-common pattern of living like the Lord's faithful disciples when you are under some kind of a spotlight. When you're under some kind of a spiritual spotlight, especially. But then later on, once you're out of that light, you take off that Christian mask, reverting to your real self once you're on your own. Think about some Sunday morning when you're among the people of God. Don't we tend to look at everybody else and we tend to think that what we see on Sunday morning or in our small groups or in a Bible study is necessarily reality? Here's what I mean. I don't think we have any Louises in our church, but so this is just a name I pulled out, so don't take this personally if your name is Louise. So a woman is lamenting, oh, Louise, she, she always has some of the most godly things to point out at Bible study. I, would, I never even, I, I couldn't think of the things that she comes up with. She's just so godly and so close to the Lord. I hope to be like Louise one day, but honestly, I can't hardly get the laundry done in one day, much less take that kind of time to pour into my Bible study. But if you could see Louise on hidden camera... Louise is a wreck more often than not. She may have some great insights, but like all the rest of us, her knowledge is well ahead of what she has learned to do. And we take Brother Bubba. I had to qualify that because there was a Bubba in the first service. Brother Bubba says, you know what, I I mean, okay, I mean, there's some good things about church and everything, but honestly, I, I go away from church oftentimes discouraged. I'm struggling with my wife, and while we have a peaceful moment here and there, for the most part, it's a battle. And then when I look at my kids, I feel like a total failure. And then John and Lucy come walking in, and they've got their brood with them, and they're so together. And John, he's always got that smiley Christian smile thing on his face, and he reminds me of Guy Smiley from Sesame Street, and I just want to go tear it off. The reality is, John and Lucy are in their eighth week of marital counseling. 
See, when we're being observed by the brethren, it's easy to put on our happy Christian faces. And Paul knows this, and so he writes to the Philippian believers saying, Look, don't just be the good, obedient, sacrificing follower of Christ when I'm in town and I'm visiting. You need to live the obedient Christian life under Jesus' lordship even when I'm not around. Actually, especially when I'm not around. By the way, there must have been something going on in the Philippian church reading between the lines because this is the second time now in this. We're only in chapter 2. This is the second time this already now comes up. Remember chapter 1, verse 27. Paul writes to them, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I remain absent that I will still hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Real faith shows that it is real faith in tangible ways. This is partly what it means to work out your salvation. So again, it seems that there may be a pattern in the life of the Philippians. It seems like they tend to shine when the camera is on them or the spotlight of the apostle is on them, but then they get lazy when it's not. As I was reading this, I was just just so thankful that this never happens to me. (laughs) Okay. Our house, we have a door yard. I've been here long enough. We have a door yard, and then we got a front door. For those of you from away who don't understand what a door yard is, the front door is that which nobody ever goes to or uses. It's a big social faux pas I learned early on in my pastoral ministry. You don't go to a front door of somebody's house. You go to the door yard. So our door yard... <laughs> Is right there. We got that's where we park the cars, and you come in, and that's where everybody goes in and out. You don't go to the front door. Well, anyway, I'm out there. It's a summer day, about 30 feet from our driveway. Is a duplex rental property, always inhabited. Windows always wide open, of course, in the summertime as they should be. And now the pastor, the minister, the reverend is out there working on his vehicle, which he just loves doing. I thought there was a time in my life when I thought I was pretty handy. And that's just gone downhill incrementally every year, ever since. Well, I'm out there working on the car. I don't remember what the issue was this time. But I was out there for some time. You know how there's that, that one bolt that you got to get off or the nut? And the people who designed the car put it where you can't possibly humanly get at it, right? Well, that's what I got to get at. And I'm working in there, and I think I finally somehow I got something on it, and I was doing this, and boom! And, of course, when you go boom, there goes the skin on your knuckles, okay? So I was thrilled and happy, and I was rejoicing in tongues in my driveway. Remember the father in the Christmas story? A string of tapestry of obscenities still hovering over obscenities, okay? One of the greatest lines of that movie. Anyway, and then, of course, in the middle of that, it dawns on me, Reverend Minister Pastor, your neighbor's, 
are so in earshot, they had to be deaf to not hear you. That wasn't entirely my concern as much as it was, what if they thought I was yelling at Barb? Ah, yeah, now that concerned me. So I'm like, now I'm like, okay, how do you salvage this and make it realistic? I know. I'll make it clear as to what I'm yelling at. So I go off into my tirade again about, you stupid automobile, you cars, I hate working on cars, and you dolls on fire. Okay. Will it surprise you if they've never visited a church here? I don't know. What we are supposed to learn from all of this is, is that faith isn't how you look on Sunday mornings. It is how you live when nobody's looking. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, all right. So if Paul's not talking at all about earning our way to heaven, and he's not, what is he saying? Well, based on what I've already noted from a mere fraction of Paul's other writings concerning salvation by faith and works and salvation and all that. He hasn't changed his mind all of a sudden and now is saying that we have to earn God's favor by doing good deeds and towing some spirit line with perfection. Paul writes again to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 16. A man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times in that verse, he makes it clear, salvation is not by your being good enough. Well, in light of all of this taken together, we're letting the Bible interpret the Bible. There is no reason for this passage to be controversial, much less contradictory to the salvation message, which is called justification by faith. Well, okay, we still haven't answered entirely what does he mean then. What, Paul, what has Paul been writing about to these believers at Philippi? Hasn't it been about living according to the Spirit with the mind of Christ and not living by one's own mindsets and one's own attitudes. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. What he's been trying to do here now is he's trying to push the Philippian believers to a higher level of sanctification, not justification. Let me explain. Sanctification is the lifelong process of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer, helping them become more and more like Jesus. It's also called spiritual growth or Christian maturity. It is an ongoing process that continues till the day we take our last breath. Justification, however, is the once-for-all accomplished declaration of God. Remember what he said about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is the accomplished declaration of God crediting the believer with the righteousness of Jesus, thereby securing for the believer a place in heaven. It is also called salvation. That is not a process. It is immediate, and it is complete. So working out one's salvation, not to be confused with working for one's salvation, 
means to continue learning and to continue doing what the Lord wants for you in your life and what values He wants you to change. And in short, having the attitudes that Jesus had and has all the time. And we can do this. We can do this even without an apostle standing around or your pastor or even a friend or a spouse breathing down our necks. How do we know that? Verse 13. Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So verses 12 and 13 becomes an encouragement for the believers at Philippi. For them to pursue their spiritual development and their walk of faith without the kind of dependence that far too many Christians develop doing relatively well when there's a high level of accountability, but then lapsing right back to old patterns, thoughts, and behaviors when the accountability decreases or disappears altogether. You know what? This is precisely what is wrong with the growing sentiment in Christendom that I do not need to go to church to be a good Christian. Really, all evidence to the contrary. There's a synonym for the disconnected follower of Christ. It is called soon-to-be wayward. So what does God mean when he uses the writer of Hebrews to exhort in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 or 26? Let us consider how to provoke one another, stimulate one another to love and to good works or good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some, but exhorting each other, and so much the more, and encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I learned that verse. It's it's a little jumbled up because there's so many different translations now in my head. But that's as far as I learned it. And then one day I decided I should... Maybe learn the rest of it too. Here's the rest of it. For if if we keep on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice but the fearful prospect of judgment. See, nobody was created to be an island unto themselves. We all need that level of accountability because even with the grace and the power of God working and willing within us to do those things, our inclination is always to wander. Like the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord. Prone to wander. Friday morning, I'm out driving on my uh, what I call my Friday morning prayer loop. And I'm going down Upper Main Street and uh, there's a car in front of me. And I always take note of bumper stickers and stickers on cars and everything because oftentimes uh, they give you kind of a touchstone of what's going on in culture today. Anyway, so I'm driving, and uh, this car in front of me now, we started out really good. In the upper left-hand corner of the window was a decal of a cross with Jesus on it. Not Jesus, I mean the name Jesus on the cross in the shape of the cross. Anyway. Down here on the left-hand side was a K-Love bumper sticker. K-Love is a Christian radio station. Next to that was Worship FM 95.3, another Christian radio station. Like, so far, so good. 
And then right next to that on the right-hand side was a rainbow-colored bumper sticker that said equality for all. Total disconnect. Now, I have no idea, obviously, who was in the car. Actually, it was a young man because we both ended up at a particular uh, place to get uh, caffeinated drinks in town. Um, I don't know if the young man goes to church, but if he does, maybe he goes so infrequently, which is a growing, growing, growing North American pattern of Christians, that he missed the weeks and all the different things in between of the teaching of God's Word on the particular subject. That's certainly possible. Or it is perhaps that he goes regularly to a church that picks and chooses what it wants to obey from God's Word. Or then again, perhaps it is that he meets with a couple other Christian friends of like mind, having convinced themselves, again, that we don't need the institutional church because after all, you know, we're two or gathered, two or three are gathered together in my name. They're my enemies of them, said Jesus. So we are church. Newsflash. No, you're not. You say, why not? You say, first of all, the passage that's being abused there is totally ripped out of context and has nothing to do whatsoever with church. It was referring to the Midrashic writings of the Hebrews where it says, where, and they actually have a, a passage in the, Midra, in the uh, Talmud that says, where the Shekinah glory dwells, there is God in the midst, referring to the visible manifestation of God at the tabernacle. That was the way God met with his people in the Old Testament. Jesus now, speaking to a largely Jewish gathering of people, said, where two or three now are gathered together in the midst, there the Shekinah meets with them. Meaning, God no longer dwells in the midst of a tabernacle, and you have to go pilgrimage to go meet with God. He now is there where the believers are gathered. It's got nothing to do whatsoever with church. Beyond that, there are divine reasons why God structured the church with many people, with many gifts to be used within and among the church to help the people become more like Christ and fulfill the mission of the church to the glory of God. There are divine reasons why God structured the church with specific offices, offices that have divine authority. And with leadership within a church, again, which has authority. So this notion that two or people sitting down maybe once a month or something and reading a couple of Bible passages and singing Kumbaya is a church. Sorry, it ain't. Need to go back and read Hebrews 10, 24 through 27. They're not doing themselves any favor. We need oversight. God knows that. Many times as a pastor, I've revealed my frustration with the Lord, with the nature of, of counseling in general. And so many times when I've spent, I've poured my life into people and literally shed tears with them. And, and you see them making progress and they're actually doing well. And then you finally get to that day where you cut them loose. And so quickly, we're not even talking months, sometimes not even weeks. 
As soon as that, that high level intensity of oversight is cut down, what happens? They revert right back to the same patterns of destruction. When Paul was around, the Philippian believers apparently flourished. But when Paul wasn't around, good reason to think that they wandered back into that trash can I talked about last week, making themselves at home once again in the muck and the mire where the maggots live. I like Solomon's word picture that he uses in Proverbs 26.11. How many dog owners do we have in here? Let me see. Okay, a lot of dog owners. How many, how many have ever owned a dog in your life as a child or anything? Okay, all right. So you've, I'm going to assume that you've probably seen this. If you had a dog, alien, right? They go outside, they go eat things that dogs eat and they shouldn't eat or whatever. And then they come in and they go, Bleh. Okay, that's disgusting enough. You've got this little slurry of bubbly kind of fluid stuff, and then there's chunky stuff in there, and maybe some, some our little schnauzer eats leaves that he shouldn't be eating and plants, right? And it's all in there. And then what happens? What do they do? And Why do they do this? They go over and they go, well, look at that. A snack. And they go back and they eat their vomit. How disgusting is that? It makes you want to almost think about being a cat owner. I said almost. Oh, I'm going to get emails on that one. I mean, it's pretty disgusting, right? I have some pictures I want to... No, 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 no. No, I didn't do that. But the picture is supposed to be disgusting. Solomon says, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his foolishness. The Hebrew there is the kasil. There's various words for, for uh, fool in the Old Testament. This is kasil, which means the stupid one. I'm not being unkind or unfair. That's what it means. The stupid one. And the kasil or the stupid one, the fool, is someone who performs the same action or makes the same decision over and over again and yet expects a different result. Well, <laughs> I know the last time I was out here and I ate that plant, man, I went in and I ralphed it all up, but I'll bet this time it's different. And ten minutes later, they're in there heaving it up again. Why do they do that? The bigger question is, why do we return so often to our own vomit? I know it's graphic. Anybody going out for lunch afterward here? No. Anybody was going out for lunch after? Okay. Paul knows that as good as the Philippian church was, and they were, that they were like everybody else. Wow, really? That's encouraging in a backdoor kind of way. They were like everyone else, sinners, saved by God's loving grace, committed to working in them to make them more like himself, not so they would be assured of heaven, but because they were already assured of heaven. That's a huge and important distinction. I don't remember who my prayer is this morning. Jim. Thank you, Jim. Come on up. So if you're still striving to gain points with God, it's not going to work. 
And at the same time, if you think that, well, yeah, Jesus is my Savior, and now I can live like hell because all will be swell in the great by and by with my pie in the sky. That's as erroneous as the first. I want to do a, uh, something a little bit different. Do we have uh, any veterans here today? If you are a veteran, would you please stand up? Stay standing. I'm going to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women that have been called to serve our country and maybe in foreign lands or maybe even at home. Father, we thank you for the calling on their life, how you protected them, how they're here today. We praise you, O God, for them. Pray that each one of them know you as personal Savior, O God. And if they don't, I just pray that today they be drawn to you and uh, they become a soldier in the army of God. Father, for the rest of us, each one of us were challenged by this message this morning. Where are we with you? What are we holding back from a closer relationship with you, O God? Pray that we'll take that next step. Bring deliverance where it needs to be. Serve you, O God, the one who gave us Jesus, his only begotten Son, and through his blood that was shed, that he built that bridge so that we can come to you blameless and clean, O God. We praise you in Jesus' name.